Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Ant-Man and the Wasp. So, how long have you been Ant-Man again? Not long. It just sort of happened. I wish I could fight bad guys like you. I seem to mess it up almost every time. Maybe you just need someone watching your back. Like a partner. Dr. Pym, I actually heard what happened to you. You opened up the quantum realm. That's when this crazy could be ghost who like walks through walls and stuff. Stole your tech. And now she wants to take over the world or whatever. Who would have believed that in your hour of need, you would turn to us? Not me. Because I mean, we robbed you. Do you remember? That's us. The only chance we've got is both of you. Ant-Man and the Wasp teaming up. Follow my lead. Joining us once again, the husband and wife duo of Karu Nagisa. Hello. And Debbie Morse. Hello. Of Sequentially Yours. And welcome back, Theo Lee of the New Century Multiverse, previously on our Infinity War show. Hello. And also welcome back, Colin Miller of The Cinema Cephalopod, previously on our Blade Runner show. Hello. I'm hoping Michelle Pfeiffer will do most of my talking today. <laughs> okay, now... <laughs> I'm going to start with the thing I wrote, and then I'm going to let you guys roll. Now, the thing I wrote is going to be kind of a it is an embodiment of how I felt when I came out of the cinema, and my overwhelming response to this film was, huh, and then thinking about it for many, many months and drawing my final conclusions the other day when we finally saw it in 4K. But afterwards, you guys get to talk it up again and talk about the strong points of this film. So, yeah, we're going to start with a, you know, a, one direction, then we'll go in the other, and we'll see how that one comes together. Because today, Sharon, Lyra, and I saw Into the Spider-Verse. It is one of the best films of the year and one of the best superhero films ever made. Ant-Man and the Wasp isn't. And this informs upon my reaction to the MCU right at this moment. Because Marvel have had a pretty mixed year with some dizzying highs and troubling lows, with an unwarranted streak of mediocrity running through the middle. Now, I adore the MCU more than any other movie series, and what I'm about to say comes from a place of concern rather than resentful demand for something that caters only for me. I'm not going, Meow, you, you killed Luke Skywalker, you didn't let him destroy the First Order! It's not about what I want, it's, it's, it's more, uh, you know, worrying patterns. In February, they launched Black Panther to astonishing acclaim, popularity and box office. This is a world-changing film with its finger on the pulse of inclusivity and empowerment of people of colour and of women, and it is more than deserving of best picture. It follows on from some of the best Marvel films yet made, with Civil War dealing with grief over departed parents, Guardians dealing with unrepentant evil daddy and ultimately repentant rotten daddy, Thor Ragnarok dealing with repentant colonial daddy, our new Spidey dealing with trying to grow beyond the need to impress overprotective inventor daddy. At the end of April, they finally assembled the Infinity Gauntlet, and this was 
This one was more difficult to pin down. It is a film that both rewards and punishes you for loving these characters. The studio's decision to paint Thanos as complex and sympathetic to some degree made the film richer, but the decision to let him win and leave an ellipsis at the close left the message confused. It presented to audiences, some of whom may have been uncomfortably familiar with abusive, insane parental figures, with an all-powerful incarnation, and then it let them walk out of the theatre in a daze, only to open up YouTube and find a slew of Thanos is right think pieces. When I finally got to know Thanos on the big screen, whereas at first I thought he was the absolute form of evil, with a little bit of free thinking, I realized that while he may not be the hero that we want, He's the hero that we desperately need. What Thanos is doing is the right thing to do. As the amount of time that we spend raising each child has historically trended upwards. Thanos deserved to win. Not in a moral sense. Not because he was the kindest or the most assertive or the one that did the right thing. He didn't do any of that. He's an evil man. The movie ultimately makes that clear. He deserved to win because he wanted it more than anyone else. He deserved it because he tried the hardest and was willing to break himself and take the hits and kept moving forward. What do you think? Are heroes the true bad guys? Let me know your take in the comments or tweet me at- It's a strange and unusual decision to not end with the good guys mustering some manner of last-ditch counterattack, especially in our age, when that kind of desperately harmful, misguided thinking needs to be challenged before- the lights go up. We need to have it squared away in our heads that Thanos is actually dead fucking wrong. The movie can still present you with a shades of grey argument. You could still come out of it feeling like actually that guy had a point. But if the movie has no conclusion that opposes Thanos, it's left to us as a people to come up with one. The Dark Knight performed this duty, and even though I've seen a few The Joker is the hero Gotham needed videos, the prevailing spirit of that self-contained crime masterpiece is that Joker is wrong about people. They aren't as vicious and selfish as he estimates. What were you trying to prove? That deep down, everyone's as ugly as you. You're alone. You can notice two things about the scene just after the fairies refuse to blow each other up. One, the Joker is an appalling loser and was going to blow them up himself anyway before Batman stopped him. And two, when confronted with the fact that he is philosophically wrong, the Joker makes it all about him and Batman now. Suddenly he's like, no, 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 don't talk about that. What about you and me in this endless dance? You just couldn't let me go, could you? <clears throat> this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Yeah, 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 Joker, you are fascinating. Moving on. Infinity War left us a year before challenging that, and we frankly, as a race, cannot be trusted with that philosophical conundrum. Individually, we can cope with and formulate a mental response, but not our eight billion head culture. Mass murderous faux philosophical thick daddy has a question mark over his head, and he should have a full stop. Less than three months later, in July, Ant-Man and the Wasp trundled into theatres, ignoring all the darkness that we were still reeling from, to deliver us a fun little adventure with a family focus. I spent the whole film dreading what might happen at the very end, which of these sweet, good-hearted characters would be dissolved remotely by Thanos. I thus found it strangely hard to enjoy the many samey fights and car chases and moments of comedy banter. It's kind of like going up to a person whose brother just died and mother just died, and best friend just died, and sister just died, and father just died, and daughter just died, and going, 
Do you want to see this video of puppies? The puppies are really cute. Uh, I, I guess that might cheer me up. Uh, just so you know, there is a chance that we might destroy 50% of the puppies at the end. Yeah, no, I'm not going to enjoy this. Hope was finally given a suit and agency of a sort after being sidelined throughout the whole first movie. However, her stoic, humorless expertise in fight-punching and disapproval of the buffoonish, somewhat incompetent man-baby male hero seemed a little bit too familiar this time, and I recognised the shape of too many of Marvel's heroines. Gamora, Lady Sif, often Natasha, depending on who she's paired up with. This kind of stern, professional woman works better when paired up with a similarly serious male lead, so Steve Rogers in Winter Soldier, Steve Trevor in Wonder Woman, all the women in Black Panther. But it does mean that Valkyrie is an outlier as a female lead with her own flaws and hang-ups who's actually allowed to be as funny as the boys. And I have reservations on both how Carol Danvers will work with the males of the MCU moving forwards and also what an all-female squad will feel like. It would take some phenomenal writing to delineate how the six stern ones are actually different. This isn't new. So many of our best female action leads are defined by being determined, professional, and mostly humorless. Even the ones I love, Sarah Connor, Ellen Ripley, even Evangeline Lilly as Tariel. My God, do we need She-Hulk, Ms. Marvel, and Squirrel Girl. Ant-Man and the Wasp is a comedy, just like the first film. And to his credit, Edgar Wright's replacement, Peyton Reed, is a long-time fan of the comics. Edgar Wright being one of the greatest comedy directors of our time, much like Lord and Miller, replaced with Ron Howard. But Ant-Man and the Wasp and Ant-Man ain't that funny, and Thor Ragnarok and Spider-Man Homecoming between one and three of the Iron Man and both Guardians make me laugh a lot more, and they're not really supposed to be comedies. And it felt at times like everyone in the cast was having a great, fun, relaxed and kooky time. Notably, the Alien film, where everybody had a blast, was mismatched goofball comedy Alien Resurrection, which followed the funereal and troublesome Alien 3. The shrinking and growth physics are, if possible, even more loose and contradictory than the first film. Tiny people punch as hard as full-sized ones. Tiny salt shakers and tiny Pez dispensers are grown into full-sized battering rams. Yet, a collection of cars and an entire building are carried around as luggage. So which is it, guys? The mass of an object is retained regardless of the size, in which case the toy-sized cars cannot be lifted by a human, and Scott cannot push a truck. Or the mass is increased and decreased with scale, in which case fighting Ant-Man is like fighting an ant. Speed was also kept consistent at all scales, so little cars go bombing down the hills in San Francisco didn't run at a fraction of the speed as bigger cars racing past them. The fact that Hope could fly and Scott rode a flying Antonio Banderas luckily meant that they wouldn't have to address the ten minutes it would take for them to sprint across a kitchen in miniature form. It's the kind of physics that you simply have to accept. Comedy takes precedence over consistency and don't ask questions. And it ended without any impact on the MCU, and that's fine. It ended without anything or anybody having to be sacrificed to bring Janet back from her exile, which felt like a 90s cartoon. Except for the fact that the X-Men did Dark Phoenix and that actually had consequences. <laughs> uh, Janet then used her quantum magic to heal the antagonist ghost, who was more defined by her crippling pain and fear than by any actual danger she represented to our heroes. 
No additional threat was posed by tepid villain from Tomb Raider, the often fantastic Walton Goggins. The villains were all embarrassed more than they were dangerous, and the often awkward comedy defanged them and bled any sense of tension away. Far from memorable, imposing villains, our heroes had hurdles to be jumped, and far from a price having to be paid, bringing back Janet just made things better for everyone. We're told by Peyton Reed in his commentary that this one is all about hope coming to the fore and that there's a thematic link of fathers and daughters with Scott and Cassie, Hank and Hope and Bill and Ava and mirroring of the original and the legacy Ant-Man and the Wasp. We're told there's all sorts of thematic content but I struggle to think of a principle or even a character that was developed within the confines of this movie. Wasp doesn't actually get to do anything like what Iron Man did, or Thor did, or Black Panther did, or Captain America did. It's just more of the same building blocks as the first one. An oddball team performing a couple of heists, then action happens. Scott Lang has a lovely family who still care about him, Hope and her dad treat one another like adults, and gratifyingly get five minutes of having Janet back to make their family whole before Thanos clicks his fingers in another movie. It's a bland, inoffensive, easy-to-watch, pleasant, amusing, marshmallowy James Bond romp with some female empowerment in there, which is nice. If you love it, that's fine, but there are so many better movies that could have been made instead of this one. The stinger where Hank, Janet, and most pointedly Hope disappear made Lyra cry floods of tears, giving this puff piece a bitter and tooth-breaking core. And still, in July, for Marvel, after Ant-Man and the Wasp hit the big screen, the James Gunn debacle hit. A foolish executive named Alan Horn was fed mock outrage by Trumpers regarding stupid, nasty comments made by Gunn years ago, and decided on the spot that he was going to make the business decision to cut ties with this man. By doing this, he played into the hands of these right-wing shits who succeeded admirably in sowing seeds of distrust in Disney, whom they hate for following their lucrative, progressive, creative course. The Trumpers succeeded in losing Disney an integral voice, a man fiercely liberal and outspoken against Trump and his Nazi fanbase, a man who in the years since making those repulsive comments has become so much better of a person, manifesting the spirit of being able to turn your life around. That decision lost Disney the faith of many people, in particular a lot of their actors and staff. In October, Iron Fist was cancelled from Netflix, then Luke Cage was cancelled from Netflix, then in November, Daredevil was cancelled from Netflix. This follows on a year after the embarrassing Inhumans show. It has become apparent that the way a lot of Marvel TV, despite its popularity, has been going is very much not in line with what the people who make the movies actually want. It's certainly not what I want, but that's by the by. They've always felt like they were operating inside pockets within the MCU, where they mention guys with magic hammers, and that means they're part of it. Speaking of which, Venom also slithered out in October. The professional critics were derisive, the people fiercely defensive of what was dubbed a hilarious black comedy. Either way, it didn't seem in any way connected with the MCU Spidey, as some had speculated, and it stuck out like a vestigial, blood-blistered thumb. And in terms of what's coming next year, the first Captain Marvel teaser excited me, but the second one made me wonder if it can possibly live up to my high, high expectations for the first female-led Marvel movie. And then the Avengers 4 trailer delivered a mismatched tone veering between melancholy, grim despair, and mawkish humour with nothing really revealed beyond what we already know from the last seconds of Infinity War. And 
Ant-Man's definitely alive, so stop worrying about that. At this point, it doesn't even matter how he gets out, we just know that he gets out. And Hawkeye is revealed as an obscure, disguised character of Ronin before even delivering Ronin. Like, we know Hawkeye's back and he's wearing a Ronin costume, so the reveal is in fact that Hawkeye's dressed as Ronin, not that Ronin's in it. We always knew they were going to fight. We definitely didn't need to see the purple monster Thanos walking through the wheat like Maximus from Gladiator to double down on the Man Pain Chronicles, further intensifying my personal anxiety that Marvel resoundingly sticking the landing on the round out to its first ten years was always just an assumption on my part. What if they have one of their off days again? I first thought Ant-Man and the Wasp was just poorly placed in the overall run of MCU films, like nothing could follow Infinity War aside from Avengers 4, or maybe Captain Marvel. But then I asked myself where it would have been better situated. What could it follow and come off well? Panther? Ragnarok? Homecoming? Guardians 2? Doctor Strange? Civil War? Ant-Man? Maybe it's just as good as a Phase 1 Marvel. But Iron Man, Thor, Captain America the First Avenger, even Incredible Hulk, abide in my memory as big events. Even throughout Iron Man 2, with Tony dying, I felt more tension. I felt more like something was at stake. And that's the one everyone throws under the bus as being kind of fluffy and meaningless. Certainly not immediately after Avengers, and following on from the Dark World would just have made it feel even more like Marvel had gone off the boil after their grand experiment succeeded. And certainly not after Winter Soldier, that does spy thriller like no other. It still feels like Ant-Man was best placed immediately after the disappointing for most other people Age of Ultron. But Ant-Man and the Wasp would have been best placed after Iron Man 3. So it was then that I realised that this is my least favourite MCU film. Even The Dark World, the previous lowest point, has pain and loss in Loki that cannot be soothed with an easy rescue and a wildly charismatic support performance from Hiddleston that has no match here. Whereas Iron Man 3, Tony's PTSD gets solved with a hand wave and a, let's not think about that anymore, as he blows up his suits. So narratively speaking, it would be in good company. I still maintain that The Dark World should have been a comedy buddy road trip between Loki and Thor throughout the Nine Realms, so we get to go on a tour of all the salient places in the comics, the way that Aquaman does. But that can never happen, and now I'm sad. Ant-Man and the Wasp is a sweet, disposable candy bar in amongst some seriously nourishing full meals and one or two life-changing banquets. So that's how I feel on reflection. I hope that in years to come, this one grows a little on me with perspective. Now, we have some questions from the listeners on the hashtag SOMHandsUp, but I do want to potentially counterbalance what I just said with some praise for Ant-Man and the Wasp's stronger points, because there were definitely some of them on show. So to our guests, my one question for this whole podcast are, what were these? I would start with, the, quite frankly... 
I needed that candy bar after <laughs> Avengers. I, I just... The timing worked for me strictly because I wanted something that was just a fun adventure. And yes, that mid credit sequence is an absolute is an absolute killer. And I wanted the fun comedic adventure. I wanted what is essentially a Paul Rudd movie. In the first movie, what you essentially had with Ant-Man and what you keep getting with Ant-Man is he is the hero that does the wrong thing for the right reasons. Something that you don't frequently see within the MCU. I mean, Captain America does the right thing for the right reasons all this all the time. Even Tony will frequently knows what the right reasons are and knows why he's doing what he's doing. In the first one, obviously the bad guy was a bad guy. He did the wrong thing, he did it for the wrong reasons, he was greedy and he wanted to kill people. Um, in this one And lambs, apparently. Yeah, and lamb oh so many lambs. He hated lambs. He really did. Yeah. And those could have been delicious, too. But no, you can't even do that. My um, lamb sandwich was in that car. Exactly. I'm just saying bye-bye, Mutton. But uh, in this one, though, you have... Uh, what's it? Yellow you Jacket, essentially... you said you loved me. Love me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm sorry, Cara. Continue. No, we needed that. <laughs> yeah, but no. In, in this movie, though, you had you had him going up against somebody else who was also doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. In both Bill Foster and in Ghost, putting those people opposite one another and showing that there are many reasons to do things, and many of them can be wrong, and many of them can be right at the same time. I think that forced the character to change his perspective a little bit and forced us to change our perspective on what these characters can be. Didn't see this in the cinema. Didn't see it until we got it on a 4K disc. And so you've only had a week to process. So I've only, a, I've only had a week to process, and B, I had a lot longer between Infinity War and mm. uh, the the somewhat lighter fare that this presented. And honestly, I just Infinity War. I really enjoyed being able to kind of put Infinity War away for a short while and not pretend everything's fine, but just have a few more moments in this, in the MCU world that hadn't been through that massive trauma. And it made it a little bit more bittersweet knowing that the trauma had already happened and couldn't be undone. And what you're describing sounds like Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Like we've only got another yeah. bit of time left at Hogwarts. Let's all have some fun. Yeah, yeah. Although no, that had wrong. an incredible ending. It did. It did. That third and act. that's that's not to say that this is necessarily a strong point in the film. Essentially what I'm saying is I enjoyed it for its weaknesses. Hmm. But I did enjoy it for that reason and some of the the fact that the performances were but there was nothing really wrong with the performances they were a bit thin in that they didn't have a lot to work with and most of the things that I really enjoyed about the film I wish there had been more of so that exploration of the relationship between Scott and Cassie, they have that lovely conversation sat in her bedroom. More of that would have been amazing. 
I thought Lawrence Fishburne as Bill Foster was great. More of mm-hmm. him would have been brilliant. And and the relationship between him and Ava and the where they were drawing their respective moral lines, I thought was really fascinating. And I could have done with more of that. So, again, it's not so much the fact that I think that it, it contains weaker elements, but it doesn't contain enough of them. They aren't allowed to develop strongly enough and as a result it is a weaker film overall i really enjoyed the relationship between scott lang and his daughter as well my favorite mcu movie is homecoming and i think something that that movie does really well is counterbalance the life of peter parker with extraneous bad thing that he has to fix and they were equals to me in that film where i was as invested as what was going on with this giant elevator that's about to drop his friends and also you know the fact that he's keeping things from aunt may and they're dealing with you know some stuff at home those to me were were quintessential both things to the plot and i guess in in the case of ant-man and the wasp i only thought that the stuff you know that he was dealing with as his human self not as his um marvel persona ant-man um i thought that was far more interesting And I would have liked to have seen more moments where he's doing something and he has to, like, make it for his daughter's play or, you know, make it for his daughter's show and tell. You know, there was a there was a moment there where they take the cast to the school and there's there's some really pretty funny things that happen when the the suits malfunctioning and uh, Paul Rudd's getting smaller and then larger kind of Alice in Wonderland type humor, um, which I enjoyed. But. We didn't see the daughter at all. They didn't even show her. She didn't show up. There was no, oh, I've got to hide you, daddy. Like, let me put you on my desk or something. You know, there was no, like, moment that I, I felt like was a missed opportunity. But that, but that was really strong when we did see it. And I also liked that, you know, even though it was a small thing, we got to see a positive representation of, uh, you know, shared parenting from two people who are divorced. I liked that they showed that, you know, him and Judy Greer's character really embrace each other. They embrace what, you know, both of their um, separate parties can bring to the table. And just seeing her be supportive of him when the police are kind of badgering him for, you know, potentially escaping his house arrest, listening to him when he has, you know, ideas to contribute about his daughter's welfare. All of that was really good. It brought a smile to my face. But uh, as I describe the smile, I'm thinking of Alex's three letters. It was kind of like a Hmm. Not like a ooh, you know. There was no like <laughs> real excitement there. Hmm. Okay, Theo. What three letters would you use to describe your response? Yeah, you, you've got a choice between <laughs> yay, ooh, hmm, huh, or meh. <laughs> 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 ooh, huh is like a, 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 a less derogatory meh. I'd say it was more like a huh. You know, for... <laughs> Slightly extended. It, yeah, it's 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 a relief because the the stakes are small. I mean, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. You've you've got there's no world ending death beam from the sky. You know, nobody wants to you know wipe out a city. They it's just want to rescue changing. Janet. They just they just they just want one thing. There's like one person caring about another person, and going on that mission, sort of laser focused, um, and then all those missions intersect. And that's not, it's, it's small stakes, but it's intimate stakes. And it's kind of refreshing, you know, like I said, there's, there's no 
world-ending crisis. It's just people needing to do something to help another person. And the the healthy relationship, like like Holland mentioned, the healthy relationship between the the, the family and the the ex-husband. There's no unnecessary ex-husband new husband drama. There's no animosity between that family, and it's really healthy. The way Cassie and Scott interact is – I have on my notes, Scott's dad game is strong. Uh, and Cassie's, Cassie's daughter game is best. Because um, yeah. the, the, the way this kid just snaps to and improvises uh, a way to uh, have, her, have her dad's back is – it's like, I wish I was that clever when I was that age. And I love that they have a kid character in this movie who isn't just, you know, kid character. She's a person. They don't treat her like an, like the annoying little, but daddy, that kind of thing, you know. I do wonder, actually, if they I mean, whether it would be the same actress or not, I don't know. But I do wonder if they intend to develop Cassie because she had some superhero activity herself in the comics. I would love her to become stature. The development of more daddy-daughter plot lines would be, I, I would like to see. But some more mothers in this would be nice Yeah, as honestly, well. I think they, they, yeah. it, it might be the time of mothers, perhaps, because like, yeah. the daddy age has had three phases so far. Sue Richards. Uh, one of the things I would really like to see that they're doing in the comics right now and see if they could adapt to the MCU somehow is um, they have Hank's illegitimate daughter as the new Wasp, Nadia. Hang on, uh, Theo, we talked right across you as soon as you mentioned Cassie. Do you, uh, you want to um, continue with what you were saying? Well, no, I was going to transition to talking about Ava and the. Okay, yeah. She's an allegory for chronic pain. Yeah. And I, I live with chronic pain. It's, it's something that before I found a solution for it, well, not a solution, but a management sort of system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it took over my life. I was it. You don't really get rid of chronic pain, even when you find something that kind of works. You always feel it. It's always there in the background. But when you before you find some way to manage it, it it takes over your life. It affects your attitude. It affects your relationships. Yeah, I was angry and cranky and tired all the time. Uh, I I was Ava. I, I couldn't face through walls, even though sometimes I wish I could. But <laughs> but I I understand exactly where she was coming from, and and people say, oh, she was she was one note. She was you know that was all that she cared about. Well, yeah. If if you were in constant pain, the only thing you think about is finding relief, and it it changes your personality. It changes your entire outlook. It affects your whole life. It can change brain chemistry. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. It 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 can traumatize you basically. It's it's a slow burn trauma. I was very sympathetic to her as well, which is again why I never really it never sat right that she was being depicted as a villain. I was just waiting for it to, her to become like more overtly sympathetic so that we could just move on with her being a character that we wanted things to go right for. However, at the end when Michelle Pfeiffer comes out of the the glowy cloud and says just stand still and then holds her hands to uh, Ava's head and goes there now you're cured. I felt like especially if it is an, an analog for chronic pain, that's waving a magic wand. That's a dreadful disservice to the the shit that she went through. It's like, well, luckily, I I stored up all the chronotons and the graviolis in my hands, and so I can now 
do this to, to cure you of, of this stuff. And so now everything's fine. And at the end, she's sort of on the run-ish, question mark. I don't really think it was so much of a cure that Janet had. It was more like a, a huge shot of, of, you know, magic quantum morphine. <laughs> it, it, it was it's like this, this huge dose of whatever medicine that I even needed for, you know, just a, a huge sigh of relief it's like mm. okay now i feel better i don't think she's completely cured quote unquote oh, okay it's I, it's it's more like they have found her management right I, okay. well, the fact that scott had to go back into the the quantum dimension to obtain more particles for her right okay. yeah the, the, he specifically says we, we've got more quantum particles for our new ghost friend sorry okay i i missed that i saw the film twice and I just felt like what he was depicting um, Janet just curing her on the spot. But you're, no, you're right. If it's an ongoing thing, then I'm being uh, harsh on it. I, I read it the same as well. I, 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 it seemed almost to me like what was happening near, there near the end when Ava is just single-minded, I must go after this or I'm going to die, almost as if this was her last-ditch effort. If she didn't get this she was going to give up and let go of life. And that what, what Janet did basically was stabilize her and give her a burst of adrenaline, I guess, or however you want to put it enough to say temporary relief. And for her to be like, okay, I can keep going. Give her hope. Really? Yeah. I think there's (laughs) there's, there's an element there of, Janet providing Ava's spent all of this time responding to the loss of her father and the replacement that the replacement parent that she finds in Bill is a replacement father and she's furious at Hank because he uh, he's a father that has destroyed her uh, parental relationship but the fact that she gets that healing from janet at the end is almost like well here's a relationship that seems to have been completely absent from your life we know her mum went with her um but but she lost connection with her as well or did her mum get killed when the explosion happened they yeah, said she her died mom too. was killed right okay yeah. so she's so not only has she got that sort of very uh, conflicted and focused desire for revenge for the loss of her father she's also lost the the nurturing representation and for Janet to bring that to her at the end it almost seemed as though it was sort of shifting perspective on how she could move forward Mm. I think then we were missing one scene where it appeared like Ava had been kind of almost an adopted daughter slash sister for for Hope the like that they had drawn her into her, her family and said look what you know things that were done were terrible and robbed you of a family we will help you we will support you to give her what she's otherwise been entirely lacking well it would have been nice to have her in that little stinger at the end just so that it didn't feel like okay right you're going to sit here in this box and we're going to go off and do things for you instead she's in an alley and bill's like you're gonna like i'll i'll help you out and there's no conclusion Mm. there but again that kind of is what I'm talking about in that there was lots of potentially great stuff in this. Yeah. It just didn't have room to breathe. Didn't develop or conclude properly. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I think was... there's a misuse of antagonists in this movie because, mm. you know, you think about like a really well-structured um, comic book movie like The Dark Knight 
where everything the Joker does is in perfect antithesis to what Batman is trying to do. And he's he's almost a character created specifically to be the perfect villain for Batman. I didn't get a sense that, like, anything that Ghost had or was lacking, like, all the things that, like, you were talking about, Sharon, they were really insightful, and I think that if they had been in there, it would have been more clear why she was the villain, because at some point I was just uninterested in the conflict between them because those things were missing. And if they had been there, it would have been better. And then also I just felt like Walton Goggins, who is an actor I appreciate and enjoy, was just put in this role because he's talented. And they were like, well, we need someone good because there's nothing here. And I think that he should have been a Scott Lang antagonist, not an Ant-Man antagonist. And what I mean by that is he could have been like, I don't know, Bill Collector or something who was trying to shut down um, his friend's business, like trying to, you know, push it in that direction. Going back to like how I think they could have like Spider-Man, Ant-Man a little bit more. um, That would have been like just another annoyance, not like man who we're going to have in this movie just so he can be in a car. They can make it explode and no one will worry about the policemen inside. Honestly, I personally think it would have been a lot stronger if they would have left out the whole Walton Goggins bit completely. And I say that as someone who adores Walton Goggins as an actor. Like, if you've never seen, he's a reason to watch Justified. Because it's literally, if, if you put Boyd Crowder in a crazy situation, like in a crisis situation and start turning up the heat... And he is mesmerizing to watch him think his way out of it. The idea of him being a, a Scott Lang antagonist makes perfect sense because Scott's a criminal. It makes sense that his antagonists are either going to be police officers and the FBI, which they kind of are in this. The FBI do provide sort of an yeah. overarching antagonist. Plus the fact you've got the yeah. specific antagonist in the corrupt FBI agent whose name mm-hmm. completely escapes me. But it doesn't other, matter. Yeah. <laughs> but, Did they give him a name? I don't know. Well, indeed. But but him also having as his uh, as a villain in his cabal, if you like, somebody who is a crime boss. You know, some this this person who is wants to be a, a high up black market dealer and is a little bit pathetic in his own way, but is kind of almost if Scott fully embraced the criminal side of himself, he could end up going down that path as well. And by having that spectrum of, you know, at one end you've got this sort of wannabe crime lord and at the other end you've got FBI agents trying to chase him down, that puts Scott's morality somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, which is quite nice. But again, needed more space to explore that. And he hardly has any dealings with... Goggins at all, does he? Mm, no. no, yeah, it's no. all hope. Goggins is basically just there to push the to push the plot and to throw a monkey wrench in whatever's going on at any given moment. There's a in bit fact, of keep away with a, a box MacGuffin <laughs> near yeah, at the end, yeah, at the end yeah. but that's about it. You could have worked that into a, a story element because Hope is not a criminal. She doesn't have no. a criminal background, and her fraternizing with black market dealers seems a little bit weird. How how does she make that connection? How, you know, how does she get to know that particular element of, of people that she obviously needs to get the materials? 
bring Scott in for that. Have that be a, a point of co- of conflict that she's asking him to go out and deal with criminals on their behalf because here's this thing that they need and they can only get it if they work with um, with the black market. Intent here is not to rewrite the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there could have been a scene where they were like, we, we can't get the quantum tunnel to work without X part, and Scott's like, uh, I know a guy. And, and he, you know, there could have been like a, a reluctant, like, uh, I don't want to go back into the criminal world. I'm three days away from retirement. I mean, uh, yeah. I know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, getting out of house arrest and he wants to do right by his daughter, but he has to, you know, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. <laughs> <laughs> well, and not to mention also that Walton Goggins' plan strikes me as massively stupid because this is not tech. It's not like. You know, there's this thing built, and it's it's all ready to use, and it just anybody can use it. You need, you would need Hank and Hope to run this stuff. Mm, yeah. Blackmailing well, them does not seem like a, a smart idea yeah. here. Well, the lab was completed. So, you but know, he I'm doesn't sure they know what the lab does. So how does yeah, there's like three it people. Matter. People, people <laughs> there's like three people on the planet here. who know what this lab does. So, I mean, and and alienating those three people is like, well, you you've, you've got a lot of lights and and giant Legos and enormous Duracell batteries in the wall. That's cool. But what does yeah, it yeah. do? Yeah. That said, though, speaking of what the lab does, one really important element of this that. That could I could be proved entirely wrong on this. It might end up being a total red herring and dead end. But it feels like they needed to seed the quantum realm fairly firmly before we get to the conclusion of Infinity War. Like that that is going to play a role in how that particular situation gets resolved. Okay, so let's go to the hashtag SOM hands up and ask our guests, that's you guys, your, the listeners, questions. Uh, Luke Hatfield asks, uh, well, says, my primary takeaway from Ant-Man and the Wasp was that I could actually remember what happened in this second film. The first film I barely remembered at all. Why is this? So why might Luke Hatfield have forgotten the 2015 film Ant-Man? Would it be very facetious of me to say that because it took place three years ago and this one's fairly recent? (laughs) (laughs) Ask us again in three years' time, Luke. But then there'll be six years between him and Ant-Man. True. What's more memorable about this one? I think Ghost is way more vivid than Yellow Jacket for me. Yes. The design of her outfit, her motivations, her backstory and her performance are all significantly more engaging and deeper than man who's cross because his name is cross oh is it is it alex cross i forget um well yeah with, with cross man yeah with steel suit ghost i was like thinking okay so this poor woman is yeah angry and phasing all over the place i want to see how this one pans out whereas with cross i was like oh get in the sea yeah, absolutely yeah. we are so done with you um <laughs> So, Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have the lamb stopped screaming yet, Cross? <laughs> um, so, 
so, so I would say that that is the so just down to the villain uh, or the antagonist and the the more exploration of his relationship with Cassie hmm. and the hints that she wants to get involved with the superhero world hmm. if you've got a dad who's a superhero who helps out Captain America you yeah and since he's able to seemingly explain it to her in a way that she approves of yeah it also gives Scott more stake in the superhero world. It's a step up from my daddy's in jail. Yes. Yeah. 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 If there's more pressure in this one to accomplish things, which I think at least it kept me more engaged with it. And don't get me wrong, I like the original Ant-Man quite a bit. I love any heist movie, even bad ones. But, yeah, this one had more consistent pressure to accomplish something and sort of more of a threat to the main character that I just don't I don't think the first one quite accomplished. Cassie's a, a big part of that because she was a little bit developed in the first movie, but I think yeah. she gets a lot more in this one. She's kind of a weird kid. She and she yeah. loves she clearly loves her dad. You know, she's a good kid. But like I loved the moment in the first one he brings that that god awfully ugly rabbit monstrosity to her and she's like i love it it's so ugly yes and i'm like she's a little bit she's a little bit weird and and i love that you get a portrayal of a kid in a movie who's a little bit weird yeah somebody who enjoys mazes made out of cardboard boxes yeah Absolutely. Yeah, Lyra adored her. Absolutely loved that she was in this. Kudos to that young actress, because my gosh, she is doing an amazing job. I, I loved her facial expressions when uh, Wu is trying to explain what her father did, and she knows that he's condescending to her, even if he's not trying to. <laughs> but she's also trying to be nice and just let him get through this. So it could be over. And that happens all on her face, and it's great. Mm -hmm. Origin stories happen a lot. And I think that Ant-Man is just a decent one. There's nothing like, ooh, wow, that's great. It's kind of, again, not to go into the three-word reviews, but it's like, huh, exactly. With this one, even though I disagreed in some of the, like, script structural issues that I've discussed earlier uh, and using MacGuffins and things... I think it was more confident in what it wanted to do, and you could get that from the clarity of the jokes. Uh, I think the uh, visual gags were a little sharper this time around, and we didn't have to worry about setting anything up, which I think people are just bored with now. Like, I don't want you to, you know, like, if they release a new Batman thing, like, please, God, don't show me his parents getting shot again. We get it. Yeah. It happened. So so I think that may have been just the, the simple thing of people tired of origin stories at this point. Yeah. One of Homecoming's best uh, traits was that we didn't see Uncle Ben die. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, yes. Ant- Ant-Man being an origin story and coming so much longer after Phase 1, which is almost entirely origin stories, it's like... Phase one is the origin story of the MCU. That's completed now. Right. So Panther's uh, origin story is technically in Civil War insofar as like he's introduced mm. there and 
we get like ha- him having to take the mantle of Panther exactly. kind of behind so the scenes. So introducing your new characters not in their own movie but in right. but by weaving them into Ditto spe- uh, Peter Speeder Parker <laughs> Peter. So yeah. <laughs> sorry guys. So Carol's will be the next. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Carol's been seeded in, in Oh, uh, Stephen, he had an origin story, a boring origin story that really could have been so much more than just the Matrix again. Mm. <laughs> uh, Sam Chapter asks, so regarding Ant-Man and the Wasp, do you think it's possible that the writers couldn't come up with more plot points that than the central concept, which is getting Janet out of the quantum realm? So they just came up with hindrances and set pieces and technobabble just to be the connective tissue to link it all together. Yes and no. Okay. Yes, it seems like all they had in terms of plot or the, the bulk of what they had in terms of plot was the central concept of, of freeing Janet and also the central concept of uh, sorting Ghost out. But I don't think it's more plot that was missing. I think it's character development. I agree. Uh, plot, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark doesn't exactly have a whole lot of plots going on. It's, yeah. you know, they are going... Yeah, find, yeah, exactly. Find the box, and everything is either a set piece or something that pushes them toward finding the box. Hmm. But we get to learn about Indy and, to a lesser extent, uh, Marion and Belloc, and that's why we like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Also, killing Nazis. Um, <laughs> whereas with this, yeah, if they had had more character moments and fewer plot-moving moments, I would have. I think that uh, would have been better. I think I could have uh, taken a Thor Ragnarok immediately after uh, Infinity War. Something with some philosophy at its core, beyond just families are nice. The problem of, of looking at YouTube and seeing the amount of Thanos was right, I'm like, Marvel, you've got to respond to this. Like, Unless Avengers 4, you've preempted these responses and you directly challenge it... Like, Killmonger had to die at the end of Black Panther. There's a whole bunch of people going, you know what, Killmonger kind of had a point, but it's clear by the end he's definitely in the wrong. So when Ant-Man came along, it's like, we're not even going to touch that one. Look over there. There's fun stuff happening here. It just felt uh, like... In fact, yeah, in between Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows 1 and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows 2, uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's what it, that like not even the uh, the uh, extremely tonally dark um half-blood prince but the, the 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 fun and sweetness of of that first one so more it wasn't so much that it was lighthearted and jokey it was it was the fact that it seemed so inconsequential yeah. am i is that a yeah. good read? Yeah, although even Philosopher's Stone, even the movie has some, you know, darkness and a sense of sacrifice and a sense of, you know, it... it, it you're, you're my little mother, Lily Potter. There's a weight to that first book, even if it is light compared with the other ones. And there's, as I've said about eight times already, no weight to Ant-Man and the Wasp. And oh. I apologize for repeating this one verbatim. Uh, and like I said, in years from now, I might look back and go, no, this was fine. But that's it, though. I think that's what you would say. And I think that's what a lot of people say is like, well, it was fine. But I mean, Marvel is so beyond fine right mm. now. 
I mean, that's they, they, they're incredible. They're freaking Marvel. You, you can't produce. I mean, you can. You have the right to do whatever you want. I'm just saying, I would prefer that you don't give us fine things. Just you know, give yourself the creative space to create something really substantial. And then when you have that thing, release it, and we'll love it. This was the only Marvel film I've seen since Iron Man Two that I came back and told Sharon, you can probably skip this one. We'll just catch it at yeah. home, on, on home mm-hmm. video. <sighs> on home VHS! Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> back in the original Ant-Man film, we saw Janet paying a very high price to save people, sacrificing herself to exile in the quantum realm to defuse a bomb. The story I was expecting, not demanding, but expecting from Ant-Man and the Wasp was that in order to get her out, an equally high price would have to be paid. I thought Hank was going to have to either give his freedom or even his life to recover her, leaving Hope and Janet together. I was also expecting Hope to be running the show. But in doing so, if Hank had also been able to help Ava, a woman who is trapped in her own ghastly predicament for reasons connected to Hank, he could also, in some ways, make amends for his past actions. This isn't about dying a hero's death or going down in glory, it's a case of exchange. And with nothing having to be paid, I felt like the film was, as we've said, inconsequential. The literal absence of consequences. To many of you, this was exactly what you wanted after Infinity War, and that is fine. To me, still grieving over the unresolved events of Civil War and the rift that that caused, that has not yet been healed, what I both wanted and needed was the conclusion to Infinity War. But I'll wait impatiently with the rest of us. also that this one switched uh, production dates with Captain Marvel so if this one had to be a little bit lighter so that Captain Marvel could be done better mm-hmm. I'm okay with that there's the actual sacrifice <laughs> yeah exactly <Whoa. laughs> meta we shall see in a few months time folks This recording originally ran to an hour and 45 minutes, and I trimmed that way back to just an hour, the focused best stuff. But if you want to hear the 45 minutes of deleted material, you'll want to be on our Patreon at the $5 level, which gives you access to well over 100 bonus shows. That includes quick reviews of everything that I've seen in the cinema recently, and there's been a lot of them. You know, Creed 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Widows, Goosebumps 2, Overlord, Robin Hood, The Crimes of Grindelwald, The Grinch, The Hate You Give, Bad Times at the El Royale, The Nutcracker, Bohemian Rhapsody, A Star is Born, First Man, and Halloween 11, and cutting class behind-the-scenes episodes like the one on Infinity War, Beyond Infinity, all the deleted footage from the solo podcast everything that didn't make the disney shows with daniel floyd a bunch of material from our guillermo del toro shows ranty political stuff from the mary poppins podcast and of course ant-man and the wasp and if you're at the 15 dollars level you get sponsor credit so once again thank you to joel robinson abel sabard michael hasco joseph gluck sean doran kevin otero luke hatfield nick ord duran barnett Tom Painter, 
Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. So, uh, where can people find your work, uh, Carol and Debbie? Um, you can find us at sequentially-yours.com, um, where we talk about comic books and comic book-related media, movies, video games, the whole nine. And you can also find us on Twitter. Yeah, he would be Panther 22 Yeah, at Panther 22 Yep. And I am at bestet8300 on Twitter. And Colin? Uh, you can find me on SoundCloud. I do a podcast called uh, The Cinema Cephalopod. And then my Twitter handle is at The Cinema Cepa One. And Theo, are you in any particularly fantastic audio dramas? <laughs> Gosh, let me think. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. Listen to New Century, or I will stare at you awkwardly wherever you are. She will. <laughs> She's very good at that. T. Viola. Earl Grey, hot. Yes, Your Highness. And for breakfast, I shall have cake. Cake, please, Viola. Yes, Your Highness. And crumpets. I want two crumpets with honey and scrambled eggs. Yes, Your Highness. No black pudding. No, Your Highness. Quail's eggs or pheasant? Oh, pheasant sounds nice. I'm being sarcastic. Please get up. We're all waiting to go and check on Oberon's brother. A princess must have her breakfast, and I shall see London in my own time. My last thing to say about this movie is that, to me, it felt like a, a single-issue floppy, and I was okay with that. I liked it. It felt floppy to me as well. Oh. And on that bombshell... <laughs> <laughs> and we will finish on the brilliant theme for Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, once again reprising the uh, series Christoph Beck. Next week, it's Into the Spider-Verse. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. out.